Hello and welcome to Conversations from the ANF podcast. We're opening up conversations to include anyone connected to the world of caring, parenting and working with children who have experienced adversity or have complex needs. In this episode, we speak to kinship carer Sinead. She shares her story of becoming a kinship carer to her niece, the legal process, the impact on her family and the challenges of accessing support. Sinead now campaigns for better support and works to support and advocate for kinship carers locally and nationally. And in the podcast, she shares the work that she does. As always, if you've experienced of adoption, fostering or special guardianship from any perspective, personal or professional, and would like to share that on the podcast, please get in touch through Facebook or Twitter page, or you can email us at andfpodcast at gmail.com. Good evening, my name's Sinead. I live in London, Brent, and I'm a kinship carer for my niece. Um, and the legal order I have is called a special guardianship order. Um, and at the moment, I currently sit on the special guardians reference group um, and our focus is on supporting the working priorities of the adoption and special guardian leadership board to influence positive changes for children and families subject to SGO arrangements. Um, I also volunteer for um, a regional adoption agency in my area that's commissioned to provide post permanency support to special guardians like myself. Um, and I also sit on um, other panel groups. I sit on family rights groups, kinship carers panel. Um, I'm a member of Coram Baff's um, advisory committee on kinship care and um, the Kinship Care Alliance advisory group as well. And um, they also have a subgroup uh, on racial equalities and kinship care, which I also sit on. That's quite a CV. Yeah, I'm very busy. <laughs> I was going to say, um, that makes sense. It was difficult to get it was together to have a chat. It makes perfect sense. Um, can I, I mean, that's remarkable in of itself, that list. And I think that it, it's really interesting to reflect that if you hadn't been a kinship carer, none of that would have happened. No, so, I, I, that um, came later in my journey, definitely. So can I ask you about the kind of the the, the circumstances that led up to you sort of making what has clearly been a life-changing decision to become, you know, a special guardian? So um, it all started in 2019. I'd probably say around August, September time, my family was contacted by social services um, in regards to my older sister who had had um, a child at the time. Um, and due to circumstances around my sister's own mental health and, you know, her lifestyle um, at the time, the, her daughter was removed and placed into foster care. So um, at the time when social services approached us, it was, you know, trying to see if there was anyone in our family who could support my sister, but also if anybody be willing to put themselves forward to care for my niece as well. Um, and I'll, I'll be honest, at the beginning of the process, I didn't really understand. I just wanted to help my sister. I didn't yeah. know what it meant um, with my niece being looked after and being in foster care. Um, and then going for assessments, I didn't really understand that process. And I felt a lot of things were being done to us as a family, rather it being a joint process with the professionals and it being explained what was happening along, along the way as well. Um, so one thing I should say, because my niece was already in foster care at the time, yeah. court proceedings were already ongoing at that time. So we came into court proceedings already um, go, uh, going uh, um, ahead. 
Um, and it was actually my mum who informed me about one of the court proceeding days. And we just decided as a family to go down to the courtroom, go down to the courthouse and present ourselves as a family to show how supportive we were of our of yeah. big sister. But also um, because we felt that we should have been a part of that process. Um, and it was during that time that we actually had a conversation with a duty social worker, uh, sorry, duty solicitor, um, who was at court proceedings, just helping different families. And she heard our, she listened to us and we explained the circumstances. And um, I had told her at that, by that point, I'd had um, a viability assessment that had been positive. The um, local authority were actually um, going to do a fuller SGO assessment of me. Um, and she questioned, you know, why are you not part of the court proceedings? Do yeah. you understand what's happening? Do you understand about the assessment? And she was kind enough at that point to take on um, my case and, and um, represent me. So at that point, I then became party to the proceedings. I then had someone to kind of, you know, um, drip feed information to me as much as they could. Um, and then once we went through that process, my... Um, so this applied to the court for a child arrangement order. So even though yeah. court proceedings were still going on, um, she argued to the judge that um, it was actually, um, you know, it, it was counterproductive given that there were so many family members who put themselves forward. Well, there was three positive carers potentially in our family. Um, so she really made a case for the, you know, that the, 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 even though there was still parallel planning at that time for my niece, the likelihood was that she was going to be um, placed back within her family. So I yeah. was successful to get the child arrangement order whilst we went through the court proceedings. And then four months later, I was then granted the fuller special guardianship order for my, my niece. I say my daughter because she calls me mum. So I'm, I'm just yeah. programmed to say my daughter now. No, no, I mean, we totally get that. And um, I mean, you've that's a really good sort of technical explanation of all the processes but i can't help but think that this bolt from the blue this this sort of telephone call and it's a life-altering message isn't it it's a, and what was it easy to wear that up because in, in in my head i sort of think well you know of course the family are going to step in but it's not an of course is it it's a life-changing decision it is. And I am, um, I'll be honest, at the beginning, I didn't, um, I didn't fully comprehend everything that I was um, going to be taking on with, with saying yeah. that I put myself forward as a prospective carer. And also, you know, at the time I was so hopeful that my sister was going to turn her life around. And, you know, I, I was, course, I was yeah. pretty much planning for it to be a temporary situation because at some point I wanted her and her daughter to be, um, you know, reunited and for yeah. her to be the mum that she always wanted to be. Um, so in at the beginning stages, it was just, this is just a temporary thing. I'm just going to do this till my sister gets better. Yeah. And I think as, as we, um, progress further through the court proceedings and I could really, um, see how much my sister had struggled for years with getting the right support with her mental health. Um, you know, she suffered with, uh, a, she went through a traumatic childhood that then, you know, spiraled into her adolescence and um, yeah. also having a care experience herself. She never really got the support that she needed. Um, and I think it was the day, the day in court that my order was granted, the special guardianship order was granted. And I was holding my niece in my arms in the courtroom and I just started crying because then I think at that point it set in for me that this is probably going to be a longer permanent mm. situation than I had prepared myself for. Um, 
And then, you know, once the order is then granted, all of the support drops off. So in terms of having a social worker, having, um, you know, the, the all these professionals involved, they slowly start to dwindle away as well. And then yeah. the reality will be sets in that this is now my child. This is now um, a permanent decision that I've made and life changing because it, it does turn your life upside down, yeah. essentially. Um, so it definitely was a hard adjustment I think the the emotional side of it was really quite difficult for me because then afterwards we we had the pandemic and I was like I felt like I was just in isolation I didn't have that um support system around me um it, even more so during the pandemic because it was so much harder for us to see our loved ones yeah. anyways um and then not being connected to any peer support groups at that point um I probably would have really benefited a, a greatly from it at that yeah. stage which is you know, being able to share with someone else who was in um, experience and similar to myself probably would have helped me deal with the emotional side of it. Um, but yeah, definitely, definitely was um, something that I was very much prepared to step up and help my sister, but I didn't realize how much it would impact on my life. Also my daughter's life as well, because I had my own child as well. So it wasn't right. just a sacrifice for me. It was also for, for her essentially a sacrifice. And how old was she, if I can ask? She was seven at the time and um, she had never met my niece before as well. Before the right. day she came home <laughs> with me, she'd never right. met her. And um, so I had had little conversations with her and telling her about her niece and telling her about the times when I would support my sister to go to contact to see her niece during the court proceedings. So she was aware um, of her, her little niece and the family. But, um, you know, I think that that wasn't helpful that during the transition period of my niece, I'm leaving foster care to come and live with me. There wasn't really any consideration to the impact that I would have on my own child and adjusting to they now being a new member in the family. Yeah. Um, but you know, she my 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 daughter is funny. She always said to me she wanted a little brother or sister. <laughs> and um, so she was over the moon. She was, you know, yeah. really happy to have this new addition to the family. But you know, as time went on, she then realized that, you know, this means that I have to share my mummy now. All of her yeah. attention isn't on me. I have to share my room and you know there was time she kind of felt um like she was forgotten about because all of my focus was getting through court trying to get my niece back yeah. into the family um so I really had to make sure that I made time one-on-one -on -one for me and my daughter as well so that she didn't feel that she was kind of neglected in my um focus to kind of support my sister and my niece um I mean it's yeah I mean anyone who's ever had a child knows that the impact is is totally all consuming and what about I mean you were I know that you worked at the time were you able to continue work or was I mean practical things like that yeah I really wish I would have been able to continue work because that was something um I um was I, I, I tried every angle as well because I did give up work um because at the time my niece was very young she was um in foster care and I felt the pressure from the local authority that you know this is the only way of me really being able to take on this responsibility right. full time meant that I would have to give up employment um so I tried other things like I tried looking for zero hour contracts or um temporary work and I remember saying to the social worker at the time you know um I want to be a role model to both of my children and my daughter has seen me from a young age working because I had my daughter when I was a teenager um so you know it didn't feel right that I didn't get that support 
even though I was requesting that at the time to be able to be um, supported with childcare so that I could, you know, have that flexibility of um, being able to still work, even if it be part time. Um, but, you know, that, that wasn't something they were able to consider at the time. It was very much, you know, in order for you to take on this responsibility, you would need to give up full time employment. And but was there any sort of offer of what sort of port- support were they offering? Anything practical? Because, I mean, if you're an adoptive parent and you were put in that position or maybe if you're a foster carer, that's fostering allowance. Was there any promise of financial support or sort of practical childcare support? So I was assessed um, for the special guardianship allowance. Um, and I remember during the court proceedings, this was something that my um, solicitor, you know, she she made sure to go back and forth with the local authority about that. Um, what I didn't realise to afterwards was that there's actually guidance on this for local authorities, especially if the child's previously been looked after before the right. SGO was granted. Um, and it wasn't until I started to do my own research and I started to um, get connected to charities like Kinship and Family Rights Group, I actually realised that I was being underpaid as a special guardian. Um, and I raised it with my local authority at the time, but it wasn't until I challenged it as far as the ombudsman that they actually looked back to the period of when I had the child arrangement order and when my SGO was first granted to see that I actually was being paid under, um, being underpaid um, and not in line with government guidance. Um, so th- there was that consideration, but I think where councils don't proactively try to ensure that their um, their, their policy is in line with government guidance, I think that's where you have cases like mine where you'll find carers, even when they are re- receiving a financial allowance, is still not in line with what the government is actually stating. I mean, it's I, I'm always struck by people like yourself who, in the midst of what are difficult circumstances, you know, you've got two children, you know, I think. It, it coincides with the time of the pandemic. And then you have to raise a complaint to the level of ombudsman, which there's lots of steps before you get to that level. And that must have been, I know, that must have been an awful experience for you. It was. And I um, actually on two occasions, I went to the ombudsman. So in regards to the financial um, support from the, my local authority and also on the housing as well. Um, so it was very stressful. It was a lot of emails at times I was being ignored. Um, I, you know, I went as far as actually reaching out to my um, local councillor and local MP for support. Um, and, you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't make you feel good as a carer because you think, you know, it's almost like I'm having to beg for support and I've made such a big sacrifice to my life and I'm actually doing a good thing to help my niece. So why is it what, um, what, what really bothered me even more was the fact that things that were in my assessment didn't reflect in the support plan. So that made it even more of a challenge to try and, um, you know, fight later for things that were discussed and just didn't transpire. Also, in in the sense that when they'd assess you, they said, oh, when, you know, when Sinead takes on the role, we'll do this and we'll do that and we'll help here and help there. And then, which informed the decision by the judge to say, well, that's, that works. And then it was just not there. Oh, crikey. No. And it it was a lot of me having to um, chase up professionals about, um, 
you know, what had been agreed in the support plan. And then, you know, it was like, well, it's in the support plan, but it's not in the court, um, the court document that you receive afterwards. You get an official, um, uh, almost like, a, I wouldn't say letter, but you get an official um, document once you have the legal order. And it doesn't, in that legal order, it doesn't say what's in the support plan. It might just give like a brief overview. So then I had that fight of, okay, it's not in your legal order but it may be in the support plan, but we can't uphold it. Um, so that was why I had to really challenge a lot of um, what happened after the order was granted as well. In the midst of then all of the, you know, the midst of the normal challenges and the, uh, well, yeah. and, and the extraordinary challenges of being a, a guardian to a child who, you know, a vulnerable child who's got a complex life yeah. story. So you gave us your CV at the beginning. You've got this, how do we go from, you know, Sinead fighting for, you know, your little family to kind of get what they deserve? How do we go from there to you then being on the board of all of these organisations? What what happened? Um, it was my um, saving grace of meeting um, the charity Kinship. You know, um, I, my first introduction to they had um, the Someone Like Me programme and um, I was able to speak to another carer. And I think I only had one call at the time, but that was enough to really inspire me and to make me want to help other carers at the time. So I started off volunteering as a someone like me volunteer um, and speaking to other carers. And um, from that point, I then got into the voluntary um, route of just trying to do as much as I could to support other kinship carers. Um, I also, as I say, I um, became a special guardian peer volunteer. So I co-facilitate a support group um, with a social worker from the regional adoption agency um, commissioned in my area. Um, and then it was uh, through my work with Kinship, I was contacted about um, to media work and actually, you know, sharing my story and experience I'd gone through. Um, and it was then after that I was invited to an away day uh, with the, uh, for the Adoption and Special Guardianship Leadership Board. And I spoke to all the professionals there and shared my experience and, and, and what I would like to see change in the future um, in terms of the support and services, support services available for special guardians. Um, and yeah, from that point, I was then invited to join the uh, reference, special guardians reference group. Um, uh, I was also contacted by Family Rights Group about their panel, um, and it was actually through Family Rights Group that they nominated me to sit on the Kinship Care Alliance Advisory Group and um, subgroup on racial equality and kinship care. And um, yeah, I've just um, fully immersed myself in the kinship yeah. community and just tried to really use my story as a um, you know, inspiration for others to know that the journey, although it may have its challenges and ups and downs, as a collective, we can achieve more, we can support each other, but then it's also looking at solutions as well. And I think that's really why I um, try to influence as much um, improvements and positive changes for children and families like myself. Yeah, I mean, that's... It's a I was listening to, uh, to all of those things you were saying, and each one of them sort of deserves their own sort of, you could do a deep dive into every single one of them because they seem like they're, it seems like a special guardianship is is shifting into the spotlight in a way that it's never been before. And do you think that's because of just the work of charities like Kinship, or do you think there's a genuine, a genuine desire to support families? 
I, I do believe that there's a genuine desire to support right. families. And I think because um, well, we see now um, in research that special guardianship orders are increasing and whereas adoption um, is actually going down in numbers. So I think yeah. we're looking at the research behind it and also there was a census done in, uh, I think, 2011 and um, it really highlighted the number of um, children living within kinship arrangements. Um, and, you know, you, although there's not an exact figure because we know there's a lot of um, children within private arrangements, um, you know, it, it's more, um, it's more, what's the word I'd say there's more kind of focus on kinship uh, rather than as to when it was before but I think it's because of the research behind it the fact that the pandemic in a way helped to bring kinship carers into the spotlight as well um you know there was already um some focus on it but I think that really helped shift shift the conversation past just special guardians into the wider kinship community as well um and then also having charities like kinship really do help to give voices to kinship care and their families as well can I ask you, um, you, you obviously you're linked into the Department for Education with it. They're, they're, they're sort of trying to spotlight on the lived experience and the voices of people with, you know, you know, they've got an adopted person's one, they've got a adopter one, but they've, they've sort of raised mm-hmm. up this group of um, uh, special guardians. Um, do you oh, feel like the, the impl- implementation board? Is that what you're referring to? Um, well, all of the boards. Um, oh, all, like, of the- <laughs> all of the boards. But um, they've got the adopter. Sorry, they've got the special guardian reference group. Um, yeah. You talked about the racial equality um, in special guardianship, which seems like a. It seems like that, again, it's a spotlight that's, that, again, it's a hidden area. You know, it's a hidden area within a hidden field. Mm-hmm. So can I ask you about the racial equality and what is the work, what is the, you know, tell me what's going on, you know, tell me, shine a light into that corner. So I know, um, so Chris Kandai, who's the chair for the Adoption Special Guardianship Leadership Board, there is another separate task group that looks at the racial disparity in adoption yep. At the moment, I don't think they cover special guardians at the moment, but that that may be something that they're looking to do. Um, But the Kinship Care Alliance um, Committee, they have recently formed a subgroup that looks at um, racial equality in um, kinship care. And, um, you know, what we're really trying to focus on is how we can build on the research in, in terms of understanding the, um, the experiences for those children and young people um, from ethnic backgrounds, because we know from the, the research, it shows that there's a lot of informal kinship arrangements. Um, and on average, they're kind of underrepresented in, in, in kinship foster care because they're most likely not to be connected to um, any support groups or linked um, right, yeah. directly to the local authority. Um, but if you, um, there was actually a, a, a report done separate to the care review. They did one that was looking at um, uh, race. And um, as part of um, the work that was done, um, they did highlight in terms of um, research that actually looked at, uh, in terms of teenage teenagers um, um, from the Black and ethnic minority group, they're more likely to go um, unsupported 
Um, right. And it, it's not really picked up to when they come into contact with um, the youth justice service um, or uh, whether it be through um, mental health services as well. But this is part of the work that we're trying to look at um, on the racial um, equalities subgroup, trying to you know build on the research, trying to actually engage with these communities as well um, and do it in a way where um, it's less kind of, um, you know, it's more inclusive because what we find is, you know, these, these big charities seem to reach the same audience and it doesn't necessarily meet those communities, yeah. um, or meet the black communities or reach the Asian communities. And really we want to, um, get their perspective as well, but also the, the, you know, to understand, um, diversity and how, you know, family dynamics will differ in, in different cultures as well and how that um, kind of feeds into the assessment and the support plan um, and then also the support services that are then made available for those families as well. Um, so it's a big chunk of work. As I say, we're, we are trying to, our main focus right now is building on engagement with these communities and then the research as well. Who's I mean, that, um, someone really good, I would say, to follow? Um, Sharon yeah. McPherson from Families in Harmony. She um, is a member of the Kinship Care Alliance Committee as well. And she does a lot of work around this. I think she's also studying at the moment to feed into the research as well. But yeah, I'd say if you're not tapped into Families in Harmonies, please don't look them up. Yeah, I think um, I think I've seen some of their stuff. And I, like you, um, I... I mean, I work in London, which is a really diverse kind of community. And um, But what I see is often that people live different ways. And so because they're not living sort of this homogenous, you know, mum and dad, you know, kids, mm -hmm. Labrador, Volvo, you know, nice white family, whatever that looks like, then, mm -hmm. then services are not seeing, you know, three generations of families living together where maybe one generation is carrying the burden. And so there is a kinship arrangement in there, but it's just, it's really hard to find out what's going on. Yeah. Um, and it's also, um, you know, the language we use with families as well, because even when I'm, you know, with members of my family and I explain kinship care, it's not a term that we're familiar with. But if you look back, you know, generations, that was something that, you know, was so normal. You know, you'd see yeah. grandma stay in Jamaica and her daughter come over to England to find work and, you know, grandma's left to look after the children. So it's something that we've seen, but we've never known um what, what, what the term for it or, or labeled it it's just family yeah it's just family yeah yeah and that's fascinating isn't it because again i working with foster carers who um i work with a few foster carers who that's their experience they tell their story of living in jamaica until they were like nine ten eleven years old or you know somewhere in the caribbean and then coming over and meeting their mum in you know some bleak november yeah. day in 1965 and it's like the total shock but having been raised by a family member but not a kinship arrangement just a family yeah. arrangement and i think this is why it's taken probably so long for even the government to, to um really catch on to it in a sense because you know when i meet with um politicians councillors mps you know, some of the questions I hear is, you know, but if your family, you, you're stepping up, why do you need support? But, you know, yeah. the, the thing that I think is forgotten about is the trauma that these children come with, the the, the early start that they, they've had and the um, unsettlement that they've had from being, you know, essentially 
taken away from their, their birth parents and then yeah. having to readjust to this new normal for them. So, you know, I think that's forgotten about for kinship children. It's the same for those children that go through fostering or adoption. All these children have trauma. You know, they they may have experienced abuse, neglect, and um, the same way foster carers and adoptive parents need that additional support and, um, you know, training, information. We as kinship carers need that as well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, can I ask as well, because you, as you were talking that, I sort of it made me think as well that is there a level of stigma about kinship care that, you know, that is there this sort of subtext that, well, if you as a family had done a good job with this person, then you wouldn't have to be looking after this person. Is I mean, that's maybe putting it in really blunt terms, but is that, do you ever pick that up at all? Um, I've heard that from grandparents a lot of right. them feeling that, um, you know, they've had comments from professionals in regards to their child. If they would have done a better job with their child, then it may not have led to them now caring for their grandchild. I'd say for myself, um, it was more so comments of, you know, how is it I came out like this and my sister ended up as she, as she did. Um, But, you know, either way, it's it's not very nice. Um, But I think what people forget about it in, in my circumstances, Obviously, my sister had a troubled childhood. She was one of them that ended up getting lost in the system. And then Mm. she became an adult. She had um, no skills to prepare her for life because she had so much trauma that she hadn't had the support to kind of deal with. And then when you then go and have children and you are suffering with mental health and not um, getting the care and treatment that you need, it's most likely that those children will then go through the system as well. And unfortunately, that's what happened to um, my sister's children. Um, so I think that sometimes they, the stigma that's placed on kinship families is not it's not fair because we don't yeah. look um, deep enough to see what the real issues are within that family, what happened to the birth parents. Um, you know, sometimes it can be a bereavement. So you can never just make that quick judgment of you. Know, if you've done a bit of par- better job with the parent, then that wouldn't have been the outcome because it's for many reasons that children can yeah. end up in a kinship arrangement. I guess it's looking again through that lens of what perfect family looks like. And so there's very mm. few people live that version, you know, yeah. two up, two down nice house, nice, we all live, every family is different. I and mean, there's lots of complicated reasons why that might happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned that you were, um, you part of Kinship Care's recent campaign and um, you wanted to highlight some of the work that specific to that. So can you tell me a little bit about what they've been up to? Um, so this is the first big campaign launch that Kinship have done. Um, and this campaign um, is uh, on the back of, um, there was a recent um, bill that was, uh, it hasn't gone through Parliament, but we're, we're hopeful that it might get passed. Right. But um, the MP Munya Wilson, who is part of the Lib Dem party, um, uh, put forward a, a, a bill for, uh, put forward, a tabled discussion for a bill to be passed for kinship care and right. um kinship the charity have just launched their value our love 
campaign. Um, and it's really just to focus on kinship care being better supported and recognised. I think at the moment they're um, really pushing for 10,000 signatures before the end of um, the year. We're hopeful that it might be. Um, they also did um, uh, an introduction in Parliament. I think it, it was um, a big launch there. And um, so there's been quite a few kinship carers who have been lobbying and their MPs to sign up and support this. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy that this campaign has been launched and I'm hopeful that it will give us more of a spotlight on kinship care. And um, if we have enough um, signatures, potentially um, actually get government to give a response. Excellent. Thank you. Um Sinead, I've taken up a lot of your time and you've been so generous with your story and you are, your CV is as long as, um, as long as long can be. I'm deeply impressed. Um, I'm going to, in the show notes, we'll put lots of links to that, that the various things, you know, the family, uh, families in harmony, the kinship campaign. So get people to sign up to that um, and just have a look at all that stuff you're doing. But is there anything that I should have asked you that you're kind of, you're itching to say? Um, I will just say that um, last month, October, was Kinship Care Week and, um, you know, we had a real um, success with so many events going on. I myself had two events, um, one in Ealing and one in Brent, and, um, it, you know, it was just really nice to see so much um, support and recognition for Kinship Care Week. And um, what I'll say I'm going on to next, I'm trying to... Um, develop a forum group in my local area so that right. it's another way that we as kinship carers can feed into our local councils rather than it just be when something's gone wrong and we file a complaint it needs to be more effective and um, constructive ways as in how we can really push for in inclusion and representation for children and young people in kinship placements but also working with those professionals to have that shared dialogue so that mm -hmm. it's services that are built around the community rather than professionals um, making those decisions and not including those with care experience or um, local residents. So I'm really hopeful that um, my local authority will support this and so there's the internal infrastructure for more opportunities and spaces to have these conversations and hear kinship voices. Well, that's, I mean, that sounds just really proactive and really, really optimistic and hopeful. And so it, what I'll do is in the show notes, we'll put your, you know, people can find you on Twitter. What do you, do you know your Twitter handle off the top of your head? My Twitter handle is uh, my name. So S-H-A-N-A-Y-D and then underscore Sinead. I'm also on Instagram. Um, you could just type in Kinship Carer and you'll, my page will come up. And um, Facebook as well. I have a Facebook group. Um, so any Kinship Carers can join that. Just type in Kinship Carer and it will come up. But I'll link you in, in the bio as well. Sinead, thank you so much for your time. And it's been an thank absolute you. pleasure. Thank you for coming on. And um, we'd love to have you on in the future as well to talk about some of this, in, all of this interesting stuff that you're doing. Oh, I would love to come back again. Please have me again. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, for sure. <laughs> okay, bye. <laughs>